Well, good morning, church. It's good to see everybody here this morning. We're glad you're here. Beautiful kind of fall day. I hope it doesn't get too cool too quickly. But uh, I just want a longer biking season. That's what my uh, selfish goal here is. But anyway, um, we're in uh, Matthew chapter 16 today, and we're going to be reading verses 33, no, 13 through 28 be kind of hard to read verse 33 since there's not one in that chapter, but anyway. Uh, Matthew 16, verses 13 through 28. And the title of the message today is A God Who Suffers. A God Who Suffers. Beginning in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside And began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading and the proclamation of His Word. If you truly want to know what the Creator of the universe is like, what Almighty God is like, you have to understand Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Jesus said, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. You cannot know Almighty God except through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ. If you you deny Jesus as Lord, you cannot know the Father. This is stated over and over again all throughout the New Testament. Hebrews 1 says it like this. Long ago at many times and in many ways... God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. 
He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Colossians 1 restates this truth. He is the image. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. Uh, That means the preeminent one in all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. To know Almighty God, you have to know Christ. You have to know Jesus Christ. And as we look at Jesus and understand He's the supreme revelation of Almighty God, we learn things about the character of God, His very nature. One of the amazing things that we learn uh, from Jesus is, is the truth that the true and living God stepped into our world in Jesus Christ to share in our sufferings. To share in our sufferings. We sang about that this morning. In Jesus we see the sufferings. uh, We see God's suffering. In Jesus we see God's suffering. um, Just like all of us as human beings will suffer. We see God going to the cross. And dying in our place for our sins. We see God suffering for us. And as God the Son suffers in our place. He also calls us to a life of cross-bearing and suffering for Him. Yes, Jesus does suffer the penalty for our sins by suffering in our place on the cross, but that doesn't exempt us from suffering in this life or sometimes suffering for Jesus as we follow Him. D.A. Carson wrote this, Moreover, the suffering of the suffering servant Jesus is not only redemptive, but exemplary. Jesus is the one who shared in our sufferings and he teaches us how to suffer and to suffer well. And he calls us to a life of cross-bearing. And yes, sometimes we will suffer because we name the name of Jesus. And we will suffer because we are human beings who live in this world. Jesus is fully confessed here in Matthew 16 by Peter as the Christ, the son of the living God in in the area of Caesarea Philippi. And we see that he is being revealed as the true Messiah and Savior of the world. That his disciples are grasping this, that they're understanding this. But we see more than this from this passage of Scripture. We see a timeless truth that's true for the followers of Jesus in every age. The Savior who suffered for us calls us to bear our cross and suffer for him. The Savior who suffered for us calls us to bear our cross and suffer for Him. This is one of the central passages of all the Gospels, and especially one of the turning points in the Gospel of Matthew. It reveals to us and gives us understanding of who Jesus truly is and what it's like to follow Him. And we can see certain things about Jesus revealed to us that are made very clear to us. First of all, we see the Savior... And Messiah revealed. We see the Savior and the Messiah revealed. 
Now Jesus, as we saw, he had this conflict with the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the first part of chapter 16. And, and then he takes his disciples uh, away, way up north to the, to the region of uh, Caesarea Philippi. Um, Caesarea Philippi was formerly called Banius or Panius after the Greek god of fertility Pan. Uh, Caesarea Philippi was reported to be the birthplace of, of this fertility god. That was the legend. Caesarea Philippi was also the center of much other kind of idol worship. It was the center of Baal worship, much of the worship of Baal, the, the hideous god of the Old Testament that we read often about. Uh, Caesarea Philippi was filled with temple, temples of the classic pagan religions. Also, besides this, uh, it was renamed, like I said, it was renamed from Banias to Caesarea Philippi. Uh, Herod Philip built a temple in honor of Caesar <coughs> there. And it was this gleaming kind of beautiful temple uh, to honor the Roman emperor. That's kind of a political thing. It's good for uh, Herod Philip to do. And so he named this uh, beautiful, glistening temple in honor of the Roman Empire. And so we look at Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus had taken his disciples away from Israel for a while. And uh, we see it's kind of a monument to the greatness of Rome and the greatness of Rome's religions. Besides this, uh, no, and here, it was here, in Caesarea Philippi, that Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Jesus said, what's the public opinion of me? And they told him, they said, well, some say John the Baptist. They thought John the Baptist had somehow been risen from, resurrected from the dead, or whatever they thought about it. Some say Elijah. Some say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. The public seemed to think Jesus was, was some kind of a prophet. And some of them thought Jesus was a prophet that, of, of the last days that like had been prophesied in the Old Testament. Uh, that's what the public thought of Jesus. And then Jesus got around to the question that really mattered. Who do you yourselves say that I am? He asked his apostles, Pointedly, who do you yourselves say that I am? You see, we can't determine ultimately who Jesus is by public opinion. Public opinion really does not matter. What matters is who do you and I say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? Peter answered, You are the Christ the Son of the living God. You are the Messiah that was promised, the one Israel has been waiting for, uh, the one that's been foretold. You are the Son of, uh, of the God, the living. It's very interesting if you read the original. It has four definite articles. You are the Christ, the Son of the God, the living one. Peter is confessing Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior, the world has been waiting for. The Son of the true and living God. And Jesus, uh, Peter was confessing he was the Son of the living God in the midst of all this paganism and all these uh, lifeless gods that were represented by the city of Caesarea Philippi.
Well, Jesus turns to Peter and says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Simon, son of John, basically. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. You didn't figure this out through human experts or through human intellect. But my Father in heaven is the one who revealed this to you. God the Father has revealed to you who I truly am. He revealed that I am the Savior, the Messiah that was sent to the world. He showed this to you. And then Jesus says, just like Peter said, you are the Christ. Jesus says, you are, you are Peter. You are Peter. Peter was the nickname that Jesus had given him earlier. And Peter meant one who is rock-like. And uh, Peter, in his rock-like faith here, confessed Jesus as the Savior, the Son of the living God. He confessed Jesus as a Messiah. Jesus said in this, this truth, this confession, this is what my church will be built upon. The confession that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Uh, Peter confessed that faith and Jesus blessed Peter because of it. Jesus said upon this confession, upon this truth, upon people like Peter who will put their faith and trust in me, I'll build my church. Now notice it's Jesus' church. It's Jesus' church. Not the apostles and not even ours. It's Jesus' church. And Jesus said the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Uh, the Greek is Hades, and that's basically the realm of the dead. And, it, and I think it has the idea of the realm of the kingdoms of death, the, ra- the realm of Satan himself. Uh, and Jesus is saying that the gates of Hades will not prevail against my church. Now, the gates of a city, in, in the Old Testament times, you often read people meeting by the gates of the city. And basically, that's where, that's where the uh, business of a city was conducted. It'd be kind of like saying they're meeting at City Hall. They're meeting at City Hall. The gates of the city was where all the leaders were, all the decisions were made, uh, all the power was invested. And Jesus is saying the gates of hell... The powers of the kingdom of the enemy will not prevail against my church. Death will not prevail against my church. Hades itself and all the forces of hell and death will not prevent, uh, will not uh, destroy my church. My church will prevail against the, uh, overcome them. In fact, it wasn't long after this that Jesus soon broke down the gates of Hades by rising from the dead never to die again. So that Jesus blessed Peter, and then Jesus told Peter, and later in chapter 18 to all the other disciples, and ultimately, I believe, to all who believe, Jesus gave to to them and to us the keys of the kingdom of heaven, the power to bind and loose. Now what's he talking about here? What's he talking about? Is is, is Jesus talking that we can force God's hands to do certain things that we uh, want him to do? The command says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. In John 20, 23, Jesus uses kind of much this same language. And it says, if you forgive the sins of anyone, uh, they'll be forgiven in heaven. If you withhold forgiveness, forgiveness will be withheld. And basically, it's the, the tense of the verb is kind of a, a strange tense. It's a perfect kind of tense. And it means, whatever, 
uh, whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is already bound, is already loosed on earth. Whatever sins you are forgiven, they have already been forgiven in heaven. What's Jesus saying to his followers here? Jesus is telling Peter and all the other apostles um, that we can, can speak uh, this truth to all who will believe. You see, if you will believe and turn from your sins in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. We can say that with certainty. We can pronounce that with certainty. We don't have to question it. We don't have to doubt it. If you believe in Jesus and turn from your sins, you are forgiven. You stand forgiven right now. Also, if you will not uh, turn from your sin, if you will not believe in Jesus, we can tell you that you will not be forgiven. You see, it's a pronouncement, it's a, it's, a, it's a certain authority that Jesus gave to us that we have the power of life and death, the gospel. Not that we can just willy-nilly decide, but we can tell people on the authority of the truth of God that if they believe in Jesus and confess Him, they will be saved. They don't have to wait to know that. They can know that now. You see, this passage for the first time in Matthew Jesus' closest followers announced they believe he's the Savior and Messiah of Israel. Peter understood it. He grasped it. And I think Peter was kind of the spokesman for the group. Except maybe Judas Iscariot. They all began to understand that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. This passage clearly reveals who Jesus was. It's a turning point in the Gospel of Matthew. He's the Messiah, the Son of the living and the true God in in the midst of this pagan, lifeless God surrounding that they were in. They understood, as we understand by revelation, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior. We, We understood who Jesus is. He begins to reveal himself to us. We began to see him and understand him. And, and it wasn't something that happened all at once. This was probably about six months before Jesus was crucified when, when this confession was made. Uh, they understood it and they kept understanding it more and more. So we see, see Jesus revealed as Messiah and Savior. But there's something else this passage reveals to us. The passage reveals what kind of Savior and Messiah Jesus is. What kind of a Savior and Messiah Jesus is? Thanks. <laughs> Fast fingers, I guess. I don't know. Fat fingers or something, anyway. Jesus is revealed as a sacrificial and suffering Messiah. Now, Matthew tells us from this time on, Verse 21, Jesus began to show his disciples he's got to go to Jerusalem. He's got to suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and the scribes. And then he's going to be killed. And on the third day, he'd be raised from the dead. He tells them this. And, and there are three or four more times throughout the rest of Matthew that he, that he tells them. And he, each time he adds a little bit more information. Like I said, it's probably about six months from this event happening, and Jesus was trying to get his disciples ready for what was ahead. I'm going to suffer, the Son of Man is going to suffer and die. 
Uh, he's going to suffer uh, many things from the elders and the chief priests. He's going to be killed and he's going to rise again on the third day. Jesus told this plainly to his uh, apostles, to his disciples. Well, when Jesus said this to Peter and the others, this was more than Peter could take. This was not what he thought or what they thought was going to happen when the Messiah came. They thought the Messiah was going to come. He's going to destroy Israel's enemies, especially the Romans. He's going to reign immediately as the forever king. He's going to, he's going to do away with all the bad guys, and he's, he's going to just set everything up and rule and reign and boss everybody around forever and ever. That's what they thought. That's what they thought Jesus was going to do, completely come the first time and totally destroy his enemies. Uh, and so Peter... When he heard Jesus say this, especially since Jesus had just called him a rock, Peter called him to the side, he took him aside, and it says he rebuked Jesus. Now think how funny this is. Peter rebuked Jesus. Peter said, Lord, i got to set you straight here. Oh, you ever try to do that, set the Lord straight? Anyway, Peter said, this cannot happen to you, Lord, this This will not happen to you. He was emphatic about it. You see, no one thought that the Messiah and Savior of Israel would have to suffer. They didn't quite grasp the meaning of those passages in the Old Testament. No one presumed the Messiah would suffer. And in fact, in verse 20, Jesus says, Don't tell anybody that I'm the Messiah. Why? Because the disciples didn't even understand that Jesus was going to have to suffer. And if they told other people, they wouldn't understand the kind of Messiah, the kind of Savior, the kind of, uh, of uh, Christ that Jesus was going to be. If the apostles didn't understand, nobody else is sure to understand. This wasn't part of the popular understanding of Messiah. Peter emphatically told Jesus, this would not happen. How did Jesus respond? Jesus immediately turned to Peter. And I think he might have been looking at the other apostles too. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me. He said, you are a hindrance, a stumbling block to me. Not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see, Jesus recognized this was a temptation of Satan. Satan had not long ago said, Jesus, you don't have to suffer. Just throw yourself off the the pinnacle of the temple and people will worship you. You don't have to suffer. Uh, And now Peter, as a kind of a tool of Satan, he wasn't oppressed or uh, possessed by a demon, but he he was just speaking a truth that he didn't understand. He said, Jesus, you don't have to suffer. And then Jesus says, get away from me. It was a temptation to Jesus because Jesus didn't want to suffer any more than any other of us want to suffer. Jesus said, get away from me. You are a hindrance for me. You are a hindrance. That word has the idea of a stumbling block, a stumbling stone. Think about this. Before Peter had been called a rock, And now he's a stumbling rock, a stumbling stone. He's a stumbling stone. See, one minute you can be a rock of faith. 
And the next minute you can be a stumbling stone. Has a, have you noticed that in your own life? You see, what Jesus, Peter was looking at Jesus, whom he loved, whom he believed in and trusted in, he, and, but he didn't understand what the mission, what his mission actually was. And he says, you know, Lord, this, this hard path that you're saying, Lord, don't, we don't want you on that path. We don't want you on that path. It's going to be, that's not the path that you should go on. You know, sometimes well-meaning people, people who love you, they see you on a path that God has put you on, and it's going to be hard, and it might bring suffering. And they say, you know, you don't have to do that. Just go a different way. Go another way. They try to dissuade you from doing what God has called you to do. They, they, want, to, they want you to live a life of comfort instead of a life of obeying the Lord. We've got to be careful that we don't ever do that. The Apostle Paul, he was going to Jerusalem and, and people were warning him. And I, I think the Holy Spirit was getting him ready. But they said, we don't want you to go to Jerusalem, Paul. And Paul says, I'm not only willing to go to Jerusalem to suffer, I'm willing to die for the Lord Jesus. He believed that's what God wanted him to do. You see, <clears throat> Peter was seeking to dissuade Jesus from the very mission Jesus had to complete. The mission of dying for us on the cross in our place. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You know, it's still hard for the world to see in Jesus a God who suffers. We don't want that kind of Savior. We want one who destroys his enemies, who zaps them from somewhere. We want a superhero kind who gets rid of all the bad guys. We want a Savior who comes down from the cross and destroys those who mock him. But that's not, kind of, that's not the Savior that Jesus is. He is a Savior who died for mockers like you and I. The way of Jesus, the way of God, was the way of the, of the God of the universe entering our suffering and suffering in our place. Isaac Roth wrote this, Will might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ, the mighty maker, died for man, the creature's sin? You see, Jesus is a sacrificial and a suffering Savior. Yes, he is. He suffered in our place. But this passage reveals one more final thing about the Savior who sacrificed and suffered for us, and it's this. the call to follow our suffering and sacrificial Messiah in sacrifice and suffering. We are called to follow our suffering and sacrificial Messiah in sacrifice and suffering. Now Jesus told Peter, he said, he said, if you want to come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross and following me. Instead of trying to dissuade me from carrying my cross, you need to pick up your cross and follow me. The way of Jesus involves the denying of self, the taking up of our individual crosses, and following Jesus. That's what it's about. Not finding the best life for us now. It's not about us uh, achieving uh, uh, what Maslow said uh, 
you know, self-fulfillment or whatever the height the Maslow's triangle, I can't remember anymore, it's been too long. It's about us dying to ourselves, denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following Jesus. The way of Jesus involves a renunciation of self, of comfort, of selfish ambition, of self-promotion and self-advancement. It is saying that I, Bob Ray, am not important or even necessary. What's important and essential and necessary is dying to Bob Ray and finding my life in following Jesus, following him wherever he leads and whatever the cost. What is important and essential is living the life Jesus calls me to by taking up that cross, by taking up that purpose, dying to myself and following him whatever he might lead me to do. You know, Jesus says, take up your cross. I don't think your cross and my cross are the same thing. Your calling and my calling are not the same thing. God has a specific call upon your life, what he wants you to do. And... And it's, it's a dying to yourself and it's saying, Lord, what matters is what you have called me to do and I'm going to do that and I'm going to follow you in doing that. <clears throat> Jesus calls us to take up our cross, which is death to ourselves and no specific calling and following him day by day by day. You know, you don't, might not realize this when you first believe. I don't think the disciples understood this when they first believed. Peter sure didn't understand that. But as we grow, and if we want to grow in Him, and know Him and live in His love, we deny ourselves, we take up our cross, and we continually follow Jesus. Jesus said, if you grab life and seek to find it by living for yourself, you're going to lose it. However, if you lose your life for His sake, you'll find life. If you gain everything the world has to give but lose your soul, what profit is there in that? Grabbing, gaining, and living for yourself and what you can get out of life, but missing Jesus and not finding Him, that's a terrible waste of life. Jesus said, if you lose all the world to follow me, when I come again, you will have lost nothing and you will have gained uh, a great reward. You know, notice how Jesus says he's coming again in his glory, in the glory of his fathers with his angels, you know, making this audacious claim. Jesus said, when I come again, I'm, I'm going gonna, uh, gonna to reward those, repay each according to what he's done. <clears throat> you see, if you lose your life to Jesus by following him, you really gained your life, the life of knowing, loving, living for Jesus and in his love. You see, as followers of Jesus, we are called to live a life like our Savior, a life of sacrifice and suffering. But we realize that it's not suffering and sacrifice at all if we can know Jesus and love Jesus and live with his people and walk with him. It's worth whatever it costs, whatever it might cost you to follow Jesus. It's worth it. Because Jesus suffered and died for you in your place because he loved you so much. Jim Dennison in his calling, uh, his column, the daily article on Monday, he wrote this. He says, as I write this morning, Hurricane Dorian is now the second strongest hurricane ever recorded. The massive Category 5 storm is nearing the eastern coast of the United States 
after leaving catastrophic damage with winds of 175 miles per hour as it makes its way across the Bahamas. The other major headline of the day is the shooting tragedy in West Texas. As of this morning, seven are known to have died. Another 22 were injured. Police have identified the shooter, and uh, though, as is our policy, I will not name him to avoid giving him greater notoriety. When a hurricane threatens millions of people, we can be frustrated with the meteorologists that meteorologists cannot predict its path. However, they're doing the best they can with the best science we have. When a man kills seven innocent civilians, we could be frustrated that police officers could not prevent the atrocity. However, they did the best they could in a horrifying situation, risking their lives to save many others. When such tragedies strike, we could be frustrated that our omniscient, omnipotent God does not prevent them, and and we could choose to reject his help when we need it most. Or we could reframe the fact of suffering by including God in it. Peter Werner served in the administration of Presidents Reagan, George H.W. Bush, and George W. Bush, and is currently senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Last April, he wrote a Good Friday column for the New York Times in which he made this statement. From the perspective of Christianity, one can question why God allows suffering, but one cannot say God doesn't understand it. He is not indifferent, remote, untouched, or unscarred. Werner quotes Episcopal priest Fleming Rutledge, who notes that before Good Friday, no one in history of human imagination had conceived of such a thing as the worship of a crucified man. Even today, the world's religions picture God, if they picture a personal God at all, as separate from our world and distant from our pain, a Zeus atop Mount Olympus rather than a carpenter writhing on a cross. In his suffering, Jesus entered our suffering. The New Testament says it this way, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Here's a result we can't embrace. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We need meteorologists when hurricanes threaten us. We need police officers when shooters are on the loose. We most need God when our broken world breaks again. Warner's perceptive meditation includes some lines from Jesus of the Scars, a poem by English minister Edward Shalito. Writing in response to the suffering of the soldiers returning from World War I, he testifies, Lord Jesus, by thy scars we know thy grace. Here's how Shalito ends his poem. The other gods were strong, but thou was weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak.
And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. That's the God we serve. That's the God who was revealed to us in Christ Jesus. He not only said, don't suffer. He not only said, I'll comfort you, but he entered into our sufferings. He calls us sometimes to a life of sacrifice and suffering. He calls us to follow him, even if it involves suffering. The Savior who suffered for us calls us to bear our cross and suffer for him. But that Savior who suffered for you is one that you can trust with your life. Will you accept his sufferings for you and trust him with yours? Let's pray together. Today, we don't have a God who is unable to understand our sufferings, but one who entered our sufferings. If you're suffering today and you need comfort, God is the God who wants to comfort you. He's the one who died for you and rose again. And if you've never put your trust in Him, put your trust in the one who is willing to lay His life down for you. Jesus is His name. He died for you and rose again. And He offers you life. If you're here today and and you've been mad at God because you think you're suffering in some ways and you don't think He understands it, I want you to know He understands it today. And if He calls you to somehow suffer because you are His, or if He calls you just in the human condition that you will suffer as we all do as human beings, understands He wants to be with you to help you in your suffering. Turn to Him. Look to Him this day. Damon and Kathy are going to be at the back if you need someone to pray with you today. Uh, during our time, a final song after the service, uh, they'll be there to help you. Our Lord, we thank You that You are not a God who is far away, but Lord, You are so near that You took took our sins upon Yourself. You suffered our disgrace. You suffered the punishment for our sins. You understand our sufferings. Father, You understood our sufferings just by becoming a human being and being thirsty and hungry and being rejected. But Lord, You understand them ultimately by doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Help us to lay our lives before You and trust You with everything that we are. And know that whatever You call us to, if we can walk with You through it, it will all be worth it. Lord, move in our lives and our hearts. Give us a hunger to walk with You closer, to serve You no matter what might happen, to to live our lives only for You. It is in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.